Few agencies in recent years have grown in scope, people, and dollars as much as the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Now CISA is about to get its own procurement authority and not have to rely on Homeland Security Headquarters. Could it be a case of be careful what you wish for? For analysis, we turn to the former commissioner of the GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. He's now Chief Operating Officer of IntelliBridge, Alan Thomas. Alan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. And in standing up a greenfield procurement organization, I guess, is what they're hoping to do at CISA, where do you start? What's the first thing they have to do to make sure that they have that capacity from the foundational level? I think you start with the people, Tom, right? And in particular, in CISA's case, uh, you know, they've said they're going to want to hire around 50 folks within the organization. And I think there in particular, it's very important that you look for folks who have not just the right aptitude, but the right attitude. Because as you mentioned, it's a startup procurement organization. And in some sense, it's really a startup within a startup. I mean, CISA is the newest component within DHS. So you're doing a startup within a startup in an area that's changing pretty rapidly, right? A lot of technology, right? The focus is obviously cyber. So I think you get the right people and that builds the right kind of culture. And then, you know, from there, lots of other things fall into place. But if you don't have the right people, you know, the fact that you're using good systems or you've got appropriate processes doesn't really matter, right? It's a little bit like a sports analogy. You got to get the right players, you know, right, to, to, to execute the strategy. I would start with the people. And what about what it is that they hope to buy? It's unlikely they'll be buying supercomputers and hardware and all of this stuff, even office furniture, but likely professional services and IT types of services, which might be then deployed in some way throughout the government, given what CISA's role is. Do they need people that are expert in cybersecurity-related professional services? I don't think you necessarily need acquisition people who are experts there, right? Their customers will be the expert, but I do definitely think you need people who have some fluency in technology and also some interest, right? Because I said, this is an area that's rapidly changing. And so, you know, something that you knew 18 months ago about the technology might be different today, and it certainly is going to be different 18 months from now. So I think you need the kind of people who are interested and curious. And again, hey, I'm an acquisition person. I'm not a technology expert, but I'm willing to sort of read and try and stay abreast of things and at least be somewhat fluent in that. So when I engage with my customer in building requirements and thinking about a statement of work, right, I can have an intelligent conversation with that customer. Right. And that's something you point out that are two distinguished skills. One is knowledge of the federal acquisition regulation. That's a skill. But in setting the right requirements really is ultimately what lets projects go forward in some kind of a smooth manner and even mature organizations like you know the army for example or some large ancient federal agency have these projects that never really go right that waste a lot of money it's endemic dhs itself veterans affairs so that contact with as you say the customer within the agency and understanding how to build requirements that would seem like the foundational skill it really is, right? I mean, it all starts with the requirements. If you don't get the requirements right, it almost doesn't matter what you do from sort of a process standpoint, right? Because the whole reason you do an acquisition is to acquire some services or some goods or some combination thereof that helps an end customer achieve a mission. And if you don't get the requirements right, you're ultimately shooting at the wrong target. So the, you know, the customer is going to be unhappy. You can run a really successful acquisition from a process standpoint, but if you don't get what the customer wants at the end, it's a fail. And, you know, most acquisition people don't want that. Again, start with the right people who've got the right attitude and aptitude to be in this kind of fluid organization where 
you're building something as you go in an area that's very dynamic from a technology perspective. We're speaking with Alan Thomas. He's chief operating officer at IntelliBridge and former commissioner of the GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. And what should they avoid doing so that there's no original sin in the operations and and so on for CISA's acquisition workforce? I think it's important to avoid trying to do too much too fast, right? So sometimes, you know, an organization says, oh, I've got some new authority, right? I want to sort of race ahead and try and, you know, kind of grab as much real estate as I can early on. That can often lead to some stumbles, right? And those early stumbles, then you sort of get branded, right, as having a problem. And, you you know, you, you sort of get in this cycle, right, where you've got to go back and start over. My sense, having talked to a few folks around this startup, is that that's not going to happen there, right? They're taking a very gradual approach. I mean, you know, we're talking a 24-month-plus ramp. Acquisition folks love milestones. So the chief procurement officer at DHS has a series of milestones in which they're going to want the acquisition organization within CISA to hit. Getting the right people's one, right, but also taking on the departmental systems that are used for acquisition and ultimately standing up a CISA instance of those systems will happen, but it'll happen gradually. There'll be a series of processes that'll go into place. And look, the chief procurement officer and the office of procurement operations at DHS will continue to have oversight, continue to certify the folks at CISA, right? I mean, CISA is ultimately going to be a component like a CBP, Customs and Border Protection, or the Transportation Security Administration. But again, it's a ramp, you know, 24 month plus ramp. So I think they've got the right approach and not trying to do too much too fast. Right. That instinct to well, let's go big sometimes can be a huge, big mistake. It can. It can. It's human nature, right? You get, oh, great. I've got these new authorities. You want to sort of exercise them, right? I say, hey, you know, you, I know you're a motorcycle rider, Tom. You get a big, fast new motorcycle, right? Maybe the first thing you don't want to do is take it out on the beltway. Maybe you want to ride some side streets first to get a feel for the bike. Yes, it's easy to get squished in that situation. And should they detail people or get people from within the government? Or is this something, the, as you say, the right aptitudes and attitudes? Are there people outside that could come in and do this? I think it would be great to see a mix of folks. So you're going to need some people from within the government. And this is always the challenge. And I do know that they're going to do some remote hiring as well, right? So have a mix of a D.C.-based and a remote workforce. Particularly in D.C., agencies tend to steal good acquisition people from each other, right? So it's like, hey, we're all, you know, all the agencies are kind of recruiting against each other. So I do think you're going to need some senior folks who come from government, but again, who've got the right attitude and aptitude. I think it will be really interesting to bring in maybe some more junior folks from the outside, maybe people who are a little more fluent in technology, who need to be trained up to some extent. But again, they've got maybe a little bit different outlook and approach. I think particularly for a place like CISA, it would be interesting to sort of mix you know, some seasoned feds and some newer folks. And they've got a little bit of a selling point there, I think, from, hey, you know, we're starting something up, right? So you can be part of something new. You can help shape the culture if you're a young person. I think that's attractive. That plus the sense of mission can help sort of compensate sometimes for what the federal government can pay, which is, look, there's only so much the government can pay. I would think they would want a couple of crusty, shrewd, far-oriented lawyers, say, for in there, so that these new people coming in with great ideas and great requirements, the lawyers can help make it kosher so that we'll pass muster legally and maybe protest-proof. But then the danger there is don't stifle the creative thinking of those people that are doing the work initially. 
That's right, Tom. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up, right? I saw that a bit at GSA with the Technology Transformation Services team, the TTS team there, right? And the and the general counsel's office at GSA. And yeah, you, there's a good healthy tension that can happen, but people sort of have to have the right attitude and ultimately be solution oriented, right? So, hey, we're trying to get to yes, we need the lawyers to help us figure out what the boundaries are. But yeah, I think you're spot on there in terms of the kind of folks you'd want to bring in from a senior perspective. Right. And that process requires collaboration because if you craft some what is in your mind as the new young person coming in, the perfect solution, and then throw it over the transom to the lawyers, say, then you're going to have trouble. Whereas if you engage those people, the lawyers, just early on, just as you engage your stakeholders and your customer early on, then maybe the lawyers will join the bandwagon and help you rather than find 50 ways why you can't do this. That's correct. There's a way to avoid the tunnel of no, and it is to bring folks in early and make them feel like they're not not make them feel like, but have them be actually part of the solution, right? Team sport. You got to legal folks who believe in that too, right? I mean, there definitely are some folks out there who think, look, I don't want to touch it until it's, you know, completely finished. And then I'll, you know, then I'll opine on it. Right. But I think for the most part, you'll find, you know, good lawyers in government service who say, Hey, I'm happy to dig in early. And as I said, be solution oriented, right? Help you figure out how to get to yes, but stay within some guardrails, which are there for generally pretty good reasons. Alan Thomas is chief operating officer of IntelliBridge, former commissioner of the GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And your and my good luck to CISA. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was 
I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities 
uh, is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.